Federal authorities warn law enforcement agencies around the country of a rise in threats against police after the FBI raid of former President Donald Trump. It is Monday, August 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, a conversation with the president of the FBI Agents Association about recent threats against agents and calls to defund the bureau. Also this hour, the state of Afghanistan one year after the fall of Kabul. You have doctors and nurses who are not getting paid salaries. You have hospitals that do not have the money to purchase medicine, to purchase equipment. And calls to end a major long-term ecological study that's seen a potent greenhouse gas released into streams that run through national parks and forests. It's 401. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. NPR has learned that among the documents the FBI was looking for in its search of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home last week was U.S. nuclear information. NPR's Ryan Lucas with details. A person familiar with the investigation tells NPR the FBI agents who carried out the court-authorized search last week at Mar-a-Lago were searching in part for documents related to U.S. nuclear secrets. The person did not say whether the documents were among the items recovered from the property during the search. The news was first reported by The Washington Post. A federal court in Florida made public the inventory of materials seized at Mar-a-Lago. The list includes documents classified as secret, top secret, and even some at the higher classification level known as TSSCI. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has been informed he is a target in a Georgia grand jury investigation into potential election interference. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler explains. Giuliani is a central figure in the probe looking to see if Trump and his allies broke the law while attempting to overturn his 2020 election defeat. He's made numerous false claims about Georgia's election results, including baselessly accusing election workers of manipulating results. Those workers face death threats. The news comes as Giuliani is slated to testify in Atlanta Wednesday in closed-door proceedings. Stephen Fowler reporting. One of Trump's most outspoken Republican critics in Congress, Representative Liz Cheney, faces a daunting primary tomorrow in Wyoming. Voters in the state overwhelmingly support Trump in 2020. Cheney, the ranking Republican on the House Select Committee that accuses Trump of illegally attempting to overturn the 2020 election results, has repeatedly tried to convince Republican voters that Trump is still perpetuating the lie that the 2020 election was stolen. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska says Cheney's shown courage. Murkowski is also facing a primary tomorrow. She, too, is a strong critic of Trump, but Murkowski is widely projected to fare far better than Cheney. A U.S. congressional delegation to Taiwan has headed home. Taiwan's president welcomed the delegation. Here's NPR's Emily Fang. The delegation was led by Democratic Senator Ed Markey and included four House lawmakers from both sides of the aisle. They met with Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen, and she welcomed them in a Facebook statement, calling Markey a very important and good friend of mine. The visit comes less than two weeks after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi became the highest-ranking U.S. government official in 25 years to visit Taiwan. China, which claims control over Taiwan, was furious. It has warned such visits could provoke military action. China had just concluded military drills last week in retaliation to House Speaker Pelosi's visit. They announced new air and Navy drills encircling Taiwan after the U.S. congressional delegation left. Emily Fang, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. 
The state's Board of Elementary and Secondary Educations voted 8-3 to three to make it more difficult to pass the English MCAS in 10th grade. The exam's passage is required for high school graduation, WBUR's Max Larkin reports. 98% of public commenters, including three school districts, opposed the move, saying it puts English learners at greater risk of failing and dropping out. Board member Darlene Lombos pressed Associate Education Commissioner Rob Curtin on how the proposal changed after hearing those voices. Given that there were over 200 opposed to it, there was nothing that was incorporated, any feedback or recommendations? That's correct. Okay, thank you. Lombos and two other members voted against the move, saying it undermined public trust. The move's supporters said under state law, all high school students must show content mastery before graduating. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Meantime, the state is easing some of the COVID precautions it recommends for K-12 schools. The state says it will not recommend mask mandates, contact tracing, or surveillance testing of asymptomatic students and staff. Today's guidance says the schools should focus their efforts on vulnerable and symptomatic individuals. State and city transportation officials are preparing for the shutdown of the MBTA's Orange Line for a month. It starts Friday night for repairs and safety upgrades. Shuttle buses, beefed-up commuter rail service, and expanded Silver Line service will replace it. Still, Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver expects it to be a difficult few weeks. We are urging travelers to evaluate their commute and, if possible, adjust. Look for a route that avoids the shuttle diversion if you must drive in and shift your travel time to off-peak hours. If possible, avoid the region altogether until the diversion period has concluded. Gulliver expects severe traffic congestion during the shutdown. In sports, Red Sox are off today. They're back against the Pittsburgh Pirates tomorrow. Forecast says partly cloudy skies tonight, lows in the low 60s. Partly sunny skies tomorrow, highs in the upper 70s. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. On this day one year ago, Kabul fell to the Taliban. With that, they were ruling Afghanistan again after 20 years out of power. So what has this day been like for Afghans? NPR's Dia Hadid joins us from the Afghan capital. Hi, Dia. Hi, Juana. So tell us, what was today like? Well, Taliban security forces, mostly young men, were doing victory laps around Kabul in convoys of jeeps, cars and motorbikes. Some of them were waving the black and white Taliban flag. Some guys were brandishing assault rifles and some had pasted flowers to their cars and were wearing sequin bandanas. But it wasn't some mass event. Most Afghans in Kabul, at least, appeared to stay home. There weren't families out or anything like that. Um, We walked over to an army jeep that was blaring pro-Taliban tunes. These are male singers who praise fighters who wrested Kabul from their enemies. There I spoke to one participant, a young fighter. His name is Samiullah, he's 23, and we chat in Arabic because he learned it in a madrasa or religious seminary. 
And, and he tells me they're celebrating because they liberated Afghanistan from foreign occupation. And he says this is an example for other Muslim countries. But he also says life has been hard. He says Afghans are hungry. And he blames sanctions imposed by America and the international community. With daily life being so tough for many, how are other Afghans feeling about today's anniversary? Well, it's hard to tell. You know, some are likely to feel pleased because security is generally much better. But the Taliban have silenced those who oppose them, like women who held a rare protest on Saturday to demand their rights. See, the Taliban have banned girls from going to secondary school. They've pushed most women out of work. They've ordered them to cover up and stay home. And Taliban security forces swiftly ended that protest by opening fire above the women's heads. But women, at least, are still trying to show that they're resisting. Like today, one young woman sent me a clip of herself singing in Dari. It's a very catchy tune in Dari, and the song's message is, don't be afraid of the Taliban. Well, that raises the question, how fearful are people of the Taliban a year after they took power? I would say, with the exception of these young, defiant women, most people appear to be nearly entirely consumed with just trying to get by. Mm. Um, There's a humanitarian crisis here. The UN estimates that more than 90% of all Afghans aren't getting enough food to eat, and millions need aid just not to starve. And that's mainly because of sanctions to punish Taliban leaders who are now in the government. And that's had a disastrous impact on the economy. To understand this a bit better, listen here to Samira Sayed Rahman. She's with the International Rescue Committee. It's one of the really big aid groups that works in Afghanistan. I've been traveling to clinics and hospitals. Here you see, you know, there are three babies and a single incubator. I talk to nurses who haven't been paid in months. So the sanctions that have been placed on the Taliban, we have a few hundred people in power, but 38 million people are suffering. And Dio, what is being done to help all of those people? Well, the UN has an enormous, enormous presence here, and they've spent about $4 billion effectively to stop Afghans from starving. The problem is they say they need about $8 billion because the need is so great, but it's unlikely donors are going to give substantially more money. We hear from multiple sources that they're fed up with the Taliban. Um, Western donors in particular accuse the group of breaking promises they made when they first came to power, like letting all girls go to school. There are so many challenges at this point. What are the Taliban's priorities now? Well, looking forward, the Taliban are focused on revenue raising, they're mining, they're doing customs taxes. And one Western representative we spoke to said he was actually impressed by how quickly the group takes decisions and gets moving. But that revenue, about two and a half billion, is nowhere near substituting for the enormous amount of aid that Afghanistan currently needs. And frankly, it appears that hardliners among the Taliban have taken the upper hand in decision making. And they've issued repeated statements that they won't compromise on their values to appease the West. So it's unlikely they're going to soften on women's rights and the country is likely to remain mired in crisis. That is NPR's Dia Hadid speaking with us from Kabul on the first anniversary of the Taliban takeover. Thank you, Dia. You're welcome.
The FBI is on high alert. It's warning of a spike in threats to law enforcement officers following last week's court-authorized search of former President Trump's Florida home. Those threats have proliferated online, also in the real world. An armed man stormed an FBI field office in Cincinnati last week. Well, FBI Special Agent Brian O'Hare has condemned these threats. He's calling on other leaders to do the same. He is president of the FBI Agents Association. That's a nonprofit, non-governmental organization that supports active FBI special agents. And he's with me now, Mr. O'Hare. Welcome. Thank you, Ms. Kelly. I'm happy to be here. I, I want to start by asking about this joint intelligence bulletin that came down on Friday. This was released by the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, warning about this jump in threats. Can you give us any more detail about what's in that bulletin? I can't give you any more detail other than to say that the FBI and DHS has been putting out products similar to this for many, many years in an effort to warn our state, local, and federal partners about the threats and risks that might impact their workforce on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Uh, you said they do this, have done this for many years. This is, this is a regular thing. Is there anything that leaps out at you in terms of just the tone or the urgency of the warning here without giving details? Well, I think the threat stream directed at federal law enforcement and the FBI in particular is notable. Um, I don't recall a threat stream similar to this in the last many years, and it's troubling. Uh, It's unacceptable, and it should be condemned by all who are aware of it. Oh, you said in the last many years, and I'll note you are an active FBI special agent. You've been one for more than two decades. Yes, ma'am, 23 years. Yeah. Any advice uh, to fellow officers? Is advice coming down to do anything differently um, in your work lives, in your personal lives, as you take account of these rising threats? Well, I appreciate the interest and the question. However, it's just not prudent to describe what we might or might not do in work or at home to deal with these threats. I will say you that when you're in the office of the FBI today, just like every other day, Special agents and professional support employees are doing their jobs to protect the American people. Uh, That doesn't change. It continues on as we speak. I I mean, I will say one of the things going through my mind as I watched those events play out in Cincinnati last week was thinking, wow, they must be battening down the hatches at field offices across the country. And then thinking, but I would assume FBI offices were already pretty secure. Any additional steps to secure facilities? Uh, You know, again, that's not something that I would share uh, if I was familiar with all those steps. Um, You know, the FBI is not immune to threats in the same way that state and local partners have been dealing with threats for a very long time. Uh, We all have to be vigilant and uh, look out for each other, and that's what we continue to do. I know um, in your association, there's something like 14,000 active uh, FBI special agents, former um, agents as well. What's the conversation? What are you hearing from them? Well, it gets a little old uh, being threatened. Uh, It's just it's a climate of uh, acceptance of violence that needs to be changed. And, And we're no different than anyone else. We don't see violence as being productive. In fact, it's counter to the interests of legitimate concerns uh, that people might have about any action undertaken by the government or law enforcement in particular. Uh, the violence does not move the needle. It, it de- 
detracts from what it is you may be interested in. And we hope that it subsides very soon. Is it getting in the way of the work? No, again, you know, we're doing the work. Um, The work continues regardless. Uh, Work continued by the FBI throughout COVID. It presented unique and unusual challenges to us, but we continue to do do the work uh, that the American people expect of us. So what went through your mind as you watched that attack last week in Cincinnati? Well, you know, that's an action that took place for whatever reasons in an atmosphere with many people calling for violence against the FBI. Uh, What I find incredibly important is the need for every leader, whether they're elected or not, every leader with a voice, every leader with a following should publicly denounce violence against law enforcement unconditionally. And that call should be irrespective of federal, state, or local status. Law enforcement uh, can do a much better job if it's not under constant threat of attack. What specific words would you like to hear them say? Uh, Anyone who's a leader in this country should be condemning unequivocally threats of violence against law enforcement. I, I have heard some touch on the subject, but then it seems somewhat conditional based on other factors. Unequivocal violence against law enforcement is a problem and should not be tolerated. That is FBI Special Agent Brian O'Hare. He's also president of the FBI Agents Association. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the Pine Ridge Lakota Reservation in South Dakota bans outside missionaries after a pamphlet denigrates traditional faith practices. In business news, Starbucks is asking the National Labor Relations Board to suspend all union elections at its stores company says a board employee accuses the NLRB of improperly coordinating with union organizers. The union says Starbucks is trying to manipulate the process to prevent workers from getting organized. The labor board says it does not comment on open cases. More than 200 stores in the U.S. have voted to unionize, including at least 12 in Massachusetts. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day higher. Dow was up 151 points at 33,912. NASDAQ rose 80 points to 13,128, and the S&P 500 gained 16 points to end the day at 4,297. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org. And Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
In the forecast, it'll be a few passing clouds tonight, lows dropping to the low 60s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow, highs in the upper 70s. And Wednesday, partly sunny, chance of showers in the morning, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. Dataiku.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The biggest and most important ecological study in the United States is facing criticism because its work involves the deliberate release of the most potent known greenhouse gas. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports on why it's been doing this in national parks and forests and why some people say it should stop. The gas is called sulfur hexafluoride. It's about 23,000 times more effective at trapping heat than carbon dioxide, and it persists in the atmosphere for thousands of years. The gas mostly gets used by the electric power industry, but for decades, scientists have sometimes used it too. We always knew it was a greenhouse gas, but we always said, well, we're using just a tiny amount of it. Bob Hall is an ecologist at the University of Montana. He's bubbled this synthetic gas into streams to measure how quickly gases can move from the water into the atmosphere. That's important to know for understanding stuff like what role streams and rivers might play in climate change. The beauty of sulfur hexafluoride is we only have to add it in very tiny quantities and it's really, really easy to measure and it's perfectly unreactive. We're not doing anything to the ecosystem by adding it. It's not reacting with anything. It's not poisoning anything. Recently, though, Hall stopped using this gas and switched to another one, in part because to him, it just seemed ironic to release this powerful greenhouse gas when studying carbon dioxide and climate change. But sulfur hexafluoride is still used by one major ecology study. It's the National Ecological Observatory Network, AKA NEON. NEON has been called the largest investment in ecological research in the United States ever. It will run for 30 years, making lots of different measurements at sites across the nation, in part to track the effects of climate change. Critics say a study like this shouldn't be releasing such a notorious gas when there's alternatives. They're doing these experiments on public lands like um, national parks and national forests, which this doesn't fit with the mission of these agencies at all. Chandra Rosenthal is with a watchdog group called Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. She says so far, NEON has released about 108 pounds of the gas. That's equivalent to burning more than a million pounds of coal. Her group has obtained internal records like emails. They show that in 2019, a government scientist at Yellowstone National Park questioned why NEON was releasing sulfur hexafluoride there. That scientist's concerns were soon shared with officials who oversee other public lands where NEON was using this gas. And the documents show they were unhappy. But they haven't really had the authority to do anything about the fact that this stuff is being used. 
In response to the questions raised by those officials, NEON did consult with technical experts who felt that the study could use far less of this gas, that it wasn't actually necessary for the study to keep taking these measurements year after year. Kaylin Cawley works at Battelle, the nonprofit research organization that operates NEON. She says the plan is to phase out this gas. We have discontinued it recently at several of our sites, but not all of them. Now, the amount of gas used in this study is really, really small compared to the vast amounts of greenhouse gases being released by power production and other sources. Still, Walter Dodds gets the concerns. He's a streams researcher at Kansas State University who served as one of NEON's advisors. He says the climate crisis is making people rethink all kinds of things. I, th I think it may be, you know, an overreaction of sorts, but um, it's completely understandable as well. We, we all are worried about what our own footprints are. The National Science Foundation, which funds NEON, told NPR that it supports the current effort to minimize its use of this gas, but Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility is asking this agency to stop releasing it on public lands immediately. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. Since arriving in North America, Christian missionaries have been trying to convert Native Americans to their faith. The practice continues, but after one distributed a pamphlet the Oglala Lakota found offensive, the tribe responded by regulating visiting churches and even banning one missionary. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports. In July, Michael Monfort with the Jesus is King mission near the Pine Ridge Reservation distributed a pamphlet to tribal members saying the creator Lakota people worship is a false idol. Monfor, who is white, recognizes the pamphlet is offensive to those who believe in Lakota spirituality. According to the Bible, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but, but by him. And I know that may not be considered politically correct, or it might be considered intolerant or bigoted, but that's what, that's what Christ said. When the pamphlet was distributed on social media, outrage was swift, both locally and among indigenous people across the country. What I see what happening with the Oglala is just kind of a continuation of this missionary interference in tribal communities. Jimmy Lee Beeson is Osage and teaches Indigenous Studies at Haskell Indian Nations University. Ridiculing and undermining our traditional spirituality, our belief systems, which is all rooted in a type of Euro-Christian supremacist ideology. This controversy comes as the federal government is now formally acknowledging that for decades it forcibly removed Native children from their families and sent them to Christian boarding schools where many were abused. Now is the time to really bring these conversations more into the forefront. The Oglala Tribal Council debated how to respond. Myron Pourier is a descendant of Nicholas Black Elk, a Lakota medicine man and spiritual leader who is also Catholic and is under consideration for sainthood. The pamphlet said Black Elk had a racist vision. To have any type of church entity come on this reservation, regardless of the denomination you are, you have to accept who we are as a people and our spirituality as a nation. Councilman Ryan Jumping Eagle said the tribe is also concerned about pictures of Native children being used for fundraising efforts and about a lack of vetting for groups that interact with kids. We just want to ensure that our kids are safe when they go with these groups. The Tribal Council eventually voted to require all churches and missions visiting the Pine Ridge Reservation to register, and they banned the missionary who distributed the offensive pamphlet. 
Oglala Sioux President Kevin Killer says they need to protect the community. They should also respect the way that we believe. Scott Moreau, a dean at Wheaton College and longtime editor at Evangelical Missions Quarterly, says he doesn't blame the tribe for banning the missionary after they saw his pamphlet. Never would I use something like this as a, as a vehicle of evangelism because I think it, it evangelizes through offense. Moreau says the pamphlet evokes the same disparaging approach that many missionaries took in the early days of Western expansion. I found ultimately that can generate fear followers of Christ rather than loving followers of Christ. And that's where I would have perhaps an ethical problem with the approach. Moreau says local churches should make decisions about what a relationship with Christ looks like as opposed to outsider determination. The Oglala Lakota's new ordinance requiring churches and missions to register does not affect local native-run churches and ministries. For NPR News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Rapid City. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars. Just ahead on All Things Considered, the president of Kenya's election commission declares a result in that country's presidential election, though other members of the commission say they cannot accept that result. Also, medical residents in Indiana rethink their decision to practice in the state after its near-total ban on abortions. That's coming up. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies tonight, lows dropping to the low 60s. Should be partly sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 70s. Right now, it is 77 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. People on Social Security are having to cut back. Don't eat out. Don't go to movies. I don't see myself flying anywhere. I'm Kimberly Adams. Fixed incomes during inflationary times. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The FBI search warrant for Mar-a-Lago shows that former President Donald Trump is under investigation for possible violations of the Espionage Act. That law makes it illegal to obtain or disclose sensitive government information. But as NPR's Greg Myrie tells us, the challenge with the 1917 law is it's too vague. It's a law dating to World War I, um, and it's very broad, so we don't know exactly how it's being used in, in this case. It can mean spying or providing secret information to an adversary. That was certainly part of it. But it can also refer to just mishandling information about national defense. Republican leaders now want the Justice Department to release the full affidavit that justified the search warrant. After days of heated rhetoric, the FBI and Homeland Security have warned law enforcement around the country of an increase in violent threats against them. The Russian lawyers for imprisoned WNBA star Brittany Griner 
had formally appealed her conviction, Greiner was sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony on drug charges earlier this month. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines reports. Brittany Griner's legal team had previously indicated she would appeal the court's ruling, but less clear was the move's impact on a potential U.S.-Russian prisoner swap aimed at gaining Griner's freedom. The appeal could take several months, and the Kremlin has insisted Griner's trial on drug charges come to a formal end, even as it has expressed a willingness to engage in closed-door negotiations. The White House has acknowledged it made a substantial proposal to Russia in an effort to free Griner and another jailed American, former Marine Paul Whelan. That deal is believed to include the U.S. releasing the convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. In comments to state media over the weekend, a top Russian government official confirmed Greiner, Whelan, and Boot were all part of the ongoing talks. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Many commuters affected by the upcoming Orange Line closure may be thinking of driving, but state transportation officials hope people will consider other kinds of public transit or even just staying home instead. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, they worry the extra cars could cause gridlock on Greater Boston's already crowded roads. Traffic could get much worse when the entire Orange Line shuts down starting Friday for key repairs. That means shuttle buses will replace subway trains for 30 days. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver urges people to avoid getting in their cars. Some transit users may be considering driving as an alternative to shuttle buses. I assure you that that is not a good option, and you should look to other transit options such as commuter rail. Traffic congestion is expected to be severe. Gulliver says people who don't need to come to Boston should avoid the city for the next month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Longtime Boston police officer Michael Cox is the city's new police commissioner after his swearing-in today. Cox, who is black, was beaten by fellow officers who mistook him for a suspect in 1995. Mayor Michelle Wu says the fact that Cox stayed on the job for decades despite a subsequent cover-up of the beating shows he is the right man to help lead the city on a path toward equity. He's used to proving what is possible and shifting that in. Commissioner Cox has also changed forever the focus in our city on how our systems must see and work for everyone. The Boston Police Department had been without a permanent commissioner for more than a year. The two Republican candidates for lieutenant governor faced off in a debate today at WBUR's city space. The candidates sparred over the value of an endorsement from former President Donald Trump. WBUR's Sidney Bowles reports. Trump has endorsed Jeff Deal for governor. He's running alongside fellow former state rep Leah Cole Allen. Allen says most Americans were better off in the last administration. I think that the policies that we had under the former president are what we are running on. We had energy independence, we had uh, border security, we had um, low unemployment rates. Former state rep Kate Campanelli distanced herself and her running mate, Chris Doty, from the former president. You know, I think a Donald Trump endorsement is guaranteeing a lose in November here in Massachusetts. We're not focused on national politics. Chris and I are here to focus on Massachusetts issues. The primary is next month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. In sports, Red Sox have an off day. They will start a three-game set with the Pirates in Pittsburgh tomorrow. 
In the forecast, it'll be a few passing clouds tonight, lows in the low 60s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow, highs in the upper 70s. Wednesday, partly sunny, chance of showers in the morning with highs in the mid-70s. Thursday, all sunshine, highs back in the lower 80s. And Friday should be mostly sunny and warmer with highs in the mid-80s. Right now, 77 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Kenya, the deputy president, William Ruto, has been declared the winner of the country's presidential election, very narrowly beating his opponent, Raila Odinga. Very narrowly, less than 2% of the vote. The announcement was delayed following chaotic scenes at the official count and allegations of vote rigging by the losing candidate's campaign. While NPR's Ader Peralta is in Nairobi, he's been out seeing some of this chaos. Hey there, Ader. Hey, Mary Louise. All right, so tell me what you saw. It sounds like high drama today. Uh, I honestly thought uh, that there was no way Kenyan elections could surprise me, and they surprised You're everyone surprised. Okay. today. Oh, I mean, everyone is. Uh, the Electoral Commission here said that they would announce results of the presidential election after six days of counting in the afternoon, and we waited and waited, and suddenly four of the seven electoral commissioners left the main tallying center and they held a press conference. They said that the election count was, quote, opaque, and they could not stand by the result that was just about to be announced. Hmm. Um, At the same time, the elections chief here went ahead with the announcement and almost as soon as he got on stage, he was attacked by a senator. And a big fight ensued. Uh, two like an actual fight, like a physical fight. An actual fight. fight. Okay. People hitting each other with chairs. Two electoral commissioners ended up in the hospital, but the announcement went on. And Kenya now has a president-elect, William Ruto. But now I'm surprised and a little confused because just a week ago, the reports were that this was going to be the most transparent election in the history of Kenya. What happened? Yeah, I mean, look, elections experts were saying that this was unriggable because just hours after the vote ended, the Electoral Commission put out raw results from 46,000 polling stations, which means anyone with the capacity could just do the math and get to who the winner in this election was. But just as quickly, both of the main campaigns in this election started throwing out allegations of rigging. And, you know, one electoral expert I spoke to said that elections in a place with a nascent democracy, with fragile institutions, just cannot survive a full frontal attack from its politicians. Well, in terms of where this goes next, uh, Rila Odinga, who has been named the loser, uh, how is he responding? Is he going to contest this? Does he have grounds to contest it? This is the fifth time Raila Odinga loses elections, um, and he has not said whether or not he will seek a remedy in the country's constitutional court. He has seven days to decide. 
So what's it feel like there? You've been driving around Nairobi. What's the mood? In some places, there is celebration. Remember, this is a bitterly divided country, 50-50, basically. And so there's celebration in some places, but also violent protests in others. Earlier today in Kibera, which is a big stronghold for Raila Odinga, protesters set fire and they started destroying shops. When we tried to approach, they started throwing stones at us, at everyone. The anger was just palpable. We spoke to a man called Jared Ocheng while that was happening. Let's listen. We are angry. We are angry. This is, one, this is not what we expected. It was a smooth vote. People casted their vote smoothly. The outcome is serious. Now, what can help Kenya, we should go for another election. Another election. Another election is what they're asking for. It's really difficult to know where we are here in Kenya. We'll see. Well, Ada Peralta, thank you for telling us what you are seeing and hearing on the ground today in Nairobi. Thank you, Mary Louise. When Roe versus Wade was overturned, Indiana became one of the first states to pass a near total ban on abortion. Medical providers say this is bad news for patients, and it could hurt Indiana's ability to recruit and retain health care workers. WFYI's Farah Husri spoke with young doctors there who are now reevaluating their future options. It's 7.30 in the morning at Indiana's largest teaching hospital. OBGYN residents meet with their boss, Dr. Nicole Scott. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Normally, they use these meetings to catch up and discuss the latest journal article. But top of mind today is what happened to one of their colleagues. Any other abortion care questions? I know um, this is hard on everyone. Um, How's Dr. Bernard doing? Bernard is actually in really good spirits. Um, I mean, relatively, just 24-7 security. Um, she has her own lawyer. She has own Dr. Caitlin Bernard is an Indiana OBGYN. She became the target of an onslaught of false accusations from TV pundits and political leaders after she revealed that she provided an abortion to a 10-year-old rape victim who crossed state lines from Ohio to Indiana. Bernard has been a mentor to most of the residents here, like Dr. Beatrice Soderholm. Watching what she went through was scary. Um, I think that was part of the point for those who were putting her through that was to scare other people um, out of doing the work that she does. Indiana's abortion ban has limited exceptions for rape and incest, fetal abnormalities, and if the patient's life is at risk. Medical providers could lose their license and even risk facing up to six years in prison if they don't follow the law. Scott tells her residents there will be 24-7 legal counsel for them. But that's little consolation for most, like Chief Resident Soderholm. Have you ever made a phone call at 2 a.m.? Even if we have consulting services available, my worry is um, that you might not get the best advice or the most timely advice, and some of these situations go poorly very quickly. That worries Dr. Wendy Tian. She's got a year left in her OB training. She's been open to practicing in Indiana, but that's changed. I always thought I wanted to do family planning. I'm now thinking about doing like something else, Um, but I I for sure like don't know if I would be able to stay in Indiana post-graduation. A survey of residents and fellows across all specialties of the hospital found that 80% of the doctors said they are less likely to stay and practice in Indiana with the abortion ban. Scott says last year, more than half of them stayed. I mean, our residents are devastated. Um, I mean, they signed up to provide, I'm sorry, 
they signed up to provide comprehensive health care to women. And they are being told that they can't do that. And I think it will deeply impact how we recruit and retain people to our state. That could be trouble for patients in states like Indiana that already have a shortage of providers. One study suggests that nearly half of all rural counties in the U.S. do not have a single hospital with obstetric services. Dr. Scott says it will also restrict the hands-on training she can offer doctors in abortion and managing miscarriages. Some programs may send residents to states without abortion restrictions, but that could be a logistical nightmare. All of this has given Beatrice Soderholm a lot to think about. Soderholm was certain she wanted to practice in Indiana, but lately family in Minnesota have asked why she would stay. I've had to think about it. I, there's been hesitation in that decision, um, but uh, it's hard to leave. She feels a strong connection to her underserved patients in Indianapolis and decided she'll probably stay. Other young doctors may choose to leave. For NPR News, I'm Farah Yusri. The story is a part of a partnership that includes Side Effects Public Media, NPR, and Kaiser Health News. You're listening to All Things Considered. Ukraine has always had military conscription. It's a legacy of the Soviet Union. But until Russia invaded Ukraine this year, some men could defer military service. Now a travel ban on men between the ages of 18 and 60 has people who never wanted to enlist or who might have gotten deferments feeling trapped and afraid. NPR's Ashley Westerman has more. A quick trip to Kyiv's main train station shows the spectrum of opinions about mandatory military service to fight this Russian invasion. Ivan Kovachinsky was out front waiting to pick up a friend who's been serving in the east. I asked him if he supported conscription. It's war, he says. If you don't want to go, too bad. It's war. A few feet away, Anastasia Petrova says conscription is probably necessary. We have to be prepared to, you know, be the country like Israel where even women are ready to serve because, you know, like we have a neighbor who's insane, so we kind of all have to be ready. But Maxim Ponomarenko, who says he has several friends who have been recently drafted, disagrees. No, I don't think that uh, the forcing uh, of prescription is the right thing. Uh, I believe it has to be voluntary. Not only is conscription not voluntary, the exceptions have been suspended under martial law and a travel ban put in place that prevents most men between the ages of 18 and 60 from leaving the country, effectively trapping them inside Ukraine. Charlie Carpenter is the head of the Human Security Lab at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which recently surveyed thousands of Ukrainians about the travel ban. A majority said they do not support requiring men to stay. They gave a variety of reasons, some of them ethical, human rights-based, and some of them very practical. Like that some men could better support the war effort, working abroad and sending money home, or that many wouldn't make good soldiers because they aren't trained properly or do not wish to fight, she says. And, she says, closing the country's borders for men could have some human rights ramifications. There's a human rights law that says everybody has the right to leave their country and return to it if they want. Um, and that is a rule in treaty law that can be suspended in time of national emergency, but only when it's strictly necessary, 
which it's hard to argue this is. When the travel ban was announced by the Ukrainian Border Service, experts saw it as a move by Kyiv to bolster the Ukrainian resistance. Colonel Ramon Gorbach is the head of personnel for Ukraine's ground forces. He says so far they've primarily called up men with current military contracts, previous combat experience, or relevant training. And while he wouldn't talk numbers, the colonel says less than 10 percent of conscripts who have been called up have been immediately sent to fight, and that rumors that men are being randomly picked up off the street and drafted are lies. Regardless of what the government is saying, Anton Waschuk with the Western NIS Enterprise Fund says a good portion of Ukrainian men would still rather leave the country than fight, now or later. He says how the war resolves itself will dictate how many people end up leaving. So if there is a good peace deal, then a larger portion of Ukrainians will remain within Ukraine. If there is a further negative outcome, whether that's you know further loss of territory or loss of job opportunities, we can expect anywhere up to 50% of uh, the current population to uproot itself. Ashley Westerman, NPR News, Kyiv. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiar. It's just ahead on All Things Considered, why efforts to understand gun violence have received next to no funding in recent decades. Also, the annual python hunt in Florida, rewarding people who captured the invasive snakes and removed them from the wild. Then, next hour, India marks 75 years of independence from the U.K., though there are fears that its democracy is under threat. All of that and more coming up here on WBUR. Remember, stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies tonight, lows dropping to the lower 60s. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering online undergraduate degree completion in interdisciplinary studies. Build off previously completed college credits and earn your bachelor's degree in as few as 30 months. Learn more at bu.edu met. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. As wealthy countries buy up supplies of the monkeypox vaccine, what's left for the rest of the world? We would definitely be more than glad to ensure that they have vaccines on standby for the high-risk populations to be vaccinated. But we know at the moment that is not possible given the stockpile. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. From coronavirus to prescription drugs to cars, the federal government studies what impacts the health and safety of Americans. But since 1996, efforts to understand gun violence have received almost no funding from Washington. That's due to the NRA-backed Dickey Amendment. It banned the Centers for Disease Control from using money to, quote, 
advocate or promote gun control, unquote. But after 20 years without funding, the government has started putting money into gun violence research again. So how should researchers rebuild this field? To talk with us about that, Dr. Patrick Carter, the co-director of the University of Michigan's Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention, joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. To start, can you just give us a sense of how much of a roadblock the Dickey Amendment has been to your field of research? It fundamentally limited the type of progress we could make. When you think about the field of motor vehicle crash injury prevention, we saw the highest number of motor vehicle crash deaths in this country in the mid-1950s. In the subsequent 50 years, we've been able to reduce the number of people who die and are injured in car crashes every year by 70%. And we did that through the application of rigorous research methods and funding by the federal government. And we can do the same thing with firearms. We just haven't been able to until most recently. Okay, so as I hear you compare this to the way we think about and the way the government studies car accidents, it strikes me that when government agencies study that, they're not weighing in and saying that cars are good or cars are bad. And so I guess my question is, the research that you're talking about, research into gun violence, It doesn't take a pro-gun or anti-gun stance, right? That's correct. So we don't tell people they shouldn't own pools. We talk to them about how to own pools safely and keep their children from drowning in pools. And it's the same situation with firearms. We don't take a stance on whether or not people should own firearms. It's really about how do we decrease the number of people who are dying. And some of that is around, you know, how do people own and operate firearms safely? And there are there is probably a population of people who shouldn't own firearms because they're at high risk and that population should be identified. And we've seen most recently with the federal government this move to move red flag laws or ERPO laws forward. And that's one mechanism for identifying people who are at risk to harm themselves or to harm somebody else. And and I think when we approach it in this way where we don't say it's good or it's bad, we we talk about how to reduce injury and death. Most people can get around the idea that we want less people across the country dying from firearms. So federal money is just starting to flow in to fund new gun violence research. But in the years where there was no funding, so many people in the U.S. have either died or been injured or in some way had their lives touched by gun violence. So I guess I just want to ask, is this funding enough given the scope of the problem? The money that we're seeing is a really good start, but it's it's not commensurate with the burden of disease yet. So when you think about uh, the number of people that die every year in the United States, over 45,000 from firearm fatalities, and you compare that to other leading causes of death, when we think about motor vehicle crash injury and cancer and HIV, the funding that's available to study the problem of firearm injury is nowhere near the level that we see of a federal investment for those other issues. To your mind, as somebody who has been studying these issues for 15 plus years, what sorts of questions are most urgent for you to answer right now? There's lots of questions to answer, and I think there's no shortage of research that's needed. Everything from understanding the current trends that we're seeing in firearm deaths and injury to uncovering more about the risks and protective factors that are unique to firearm suicides and firearm homicides to the types of programs and policies and solutions that we need across the board. There's just a lot of work to be done. Dr. Patrick Carter, co-director of the University of Michigan's Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, of pythons slithering through the Everglades. And this year, 950 hunters signed up for the Python Challenge. That's a state-sponsored snake hunt targeting one of Florida's most troublesome invasive species, the Burmese python. Well, it may be too late to eliminate them, but as NPR's Greg Allen reports, python hunters say they are making a difference. At a python check station in Miami on the edge of the Everglades, Donna Khalil has just brought in her day's catch, turning it over to Holly Andreata. Where'd you find him? Um, he was uh, close to Burns, Burns Lake, right on 41. So big cypress. Little guy. Yeah, he's a little guy. This is the time of year that pythons are hatching and leaving the nest. This one is just a few months old, but is already over two feet long. Khalil is a professional python hunter one of about 100 contractors paid year-round to find and eliminate the invasive snakes. Last year, she won in the Python Challenges professional category, bringing in the most snakes, 19. I knew that I had a set of skills to uh, be able to help. I've been catching snakes all my life. I'm a herper from, from, a, from being a kid. My, my brothers were uh, herpers as well, and I followed in their footsteps. Khalil is proud of her career total. She's brought in more than 600 pythons so far, working mostly at night, driving along levees and roads in the Everglades in her SUV with a specially designed python perch mounted on top. I have two volunteers that sit up there. I have lights all around, and we basically just drive along. You know, once we see a python along the way, you know, somebody yells python, I stop the car, get out, and I sneak up behind it and grab it by the neck and start wrestling. <laughs> Khalil says this is a good time of year to be hunting pythons. She says they're on the move and you might find a big one crossing a road or a levee. The biggest one I caught was uh, 16 feet. It basically took three of us for a ride. Uh, I did grab it by the neck and, and held on. My, my friend, uh, she jumped on the back of it and, and we were literally riding that thing and, and basically wearing it out until, until we got it under control. So yeah, it was, it was a big fight. Not much is known about how pythons became established in Florida, except that they've been here now for about three decades. In this year's competition, a $10,000 top prize will go to the hunter who brings in the most pythons. Mike Kirkland, who manages the python elimination program for the South Florida Water Management District, says eliminating them from the environment may no longer be possible. We might be past a point for full eradication, but I'm very optimistic that we're going to be able to reduce the population enough so that our native wildlife can return. A major question still not answered about pythons is how many are there in Florida? They're very difficult to spot in the wild, and most of the several thousand square miles of the Everglades is inaccessible except by airboat. Kirkland says human detection and removal has been the most effective way to combat pythons. In some areas near Everglades National Park, rabbits, possums, and other small mammals that had been wiped out by the snakes have begun to return. At the check station, Joaquin Vila has just brought in his catch, another python hatchling. Vila says at least in areas where they can get access, he believes he and other hunters are putting a dent in the python population. The other day we were talking about, about out here that we saw about eight uh, deer. And some of the other guys that have been out here, they're like, man, I haven't seen that many in a while. So I think it is making a difference. Between contractors, novice hunters, and the state-sponsored competition, more than 17,000 pythons have been removed over the last 20 years. That could be good news if we had some idea how many pythons were still out there. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments, 
wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump's team claims he had a, quote, standing order that any materials he took to his residence became declassified. A national security expert weighs in. If a president brought the entire presidential daily briefing book upstairs, does that mean that every single thing derived from it is automatically declassified? It's Monday, August 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopi. And also this hour, Rudy Giuliani is a target of a criminal investigation into election interference in Georgia. Giuliani, a personal lawyer for Donald Trump, is accused of trying to reverse the 2020 election results. And a Middle East foreign affairs expert discusses the impact and legacy of Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A U.S. congressional delegation has wrapped up a two-day unannounced trip to Taiwan. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the visit is prompting renewed threats from China, which claims the self-governing island is its own territory. The delegation met with the Taiwanese government to discuss topics of mutual interest, including bilateral relations, trade, and regional security. Shortly after the lawmakers departed Taipei, China announced that it was renewing additional air and Navy military exercises in the Taiwan Strait in retaliation for the visit. The Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C. also released a statement saying that Beijing would take resolute countermeasures in response to the trip. The renewed threats come two weeks after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, which tipped off China's stepped-up military presence in the region. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Iran is trying to distance itself from last week's attack on author Salman Rushdie, but he and his supporters saying he and his supporters rather are to blame for insulting Islam. The State Department calls that quote disgusting, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Iran is blaming the victim, and State Department spokesman Ned Price had choice words about that. It's despicable. It's disgusting. Uh, we condemn it. He points out that Salman Rushdie has been under threat for decades now. And it is no secret that the Iranian regime uh, has been central uh, to the threats against his life over the course of years now. 
The State Department spokesman would not connect this attack to negotiations over reviving a nuclear deal with Iran. Price argues that a nuclear-armed Iran would feel a greater degree of impunity and would pose a greater threat to the U.S. and the world. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A special prosecutor in Fulton County, Georgia, probing efforts to overturn the 2020 election has told lawyers for Rudy Giuliani that he is a target of a criminal investigation. That was confirmed today by Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Castillo. Giuliani and his attorneys are due in Georgia Wednesday for a grand jury appearance. Oil prices continue to fall from their recent highs. NPR Scott Horsley reports the benchmark price for U.S. crude fell below $90 a barrel today. Sky-high oil prices in the spring produced a gusher of profits for energy companies. Saudi Aramco said over the weekend its second quarter earnings topped $48 billion, a 90% increase from a year ago. Oil prices have since dipped, however, partly on fears of a global economic slowdown. AAA says the average price of gasoline has dropped below $3.96 a gallon. As gas prices fall, shoppers have more to spend elsewhere. The Commerce Department sets report this week on how retail sales fared in July. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 151 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. State transportation officials are urging you to plan ahead if you're traveling in and around Boston for the foreseeable future. A month-long shutdown of the Orange Line starts Friday night for repairs and track work. Shuttle buses will run along most of the route, with the Green Line serving as a connection where buses don't run. T General Manager Steve Poftak is asking employers to allow people to work from home if at all possible. I understand that many of our customers do not have the option to stay home during the closures. So I encourage all of our customers to plan ahead and consider alternative travel options. Really want to emphasize uh, the commuter rail as a potential option. Boston's Chief of Streets, Yasha Franklin-Hodge, says the city is taking steps to try to make sure the, the shuttle buses get around without any snags. We're adding bus lanes at various points along the shuttle route. We're analyzing the shuttle route to make sure that buses can safely travel and turn. This analysis is resulting in numerous small adjustments that will help smooth out shuttle movements and keep, it, keep the streets safe for all users of the road. The city is putting up signs to alert riders where they need to go and establishing parking restrictions around shuttle bus stops. State highway officials predict severe traffic congestion during the shutdown. It's getting tougher to graduate high school in Massachusetts. State education officials are voting to increase MCAS score requirements for the English part of the exam. There was significant opposition to the proposal, with critics saying the change will negatively impact students learning English. So far, no sign of a 21-year-old man who jumped off a bridge in Martha's Vineyard over the weekend. The body of the man's 26-year-old brother, who jumped off the bridge at the same time, has already been recovered. State police began searching last night for the two men, who did not resurface after jumping off the so-called Jaws Bridge between Edgartown and Oak Bluffs. Crews in Boston are repairing damage on Tremont Street in the south end caused by a busted water main. The 1870s-era main broke this morning near Mass Ave. It flooded Tremont and opened up a sinkhole that partially swallowed a car before it was removed. Crews have shut off water to some of the area as repairs are made. A water truck will be on site this hour for people to fill water bottles and jugs. In sports, Red Sox and Pirates play in Pittsburgh tomorrow night. Nick Pavetta expected to start. In the forecast, cloudy tonight, low 61 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high of 78. Right now, 77 with clouds. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include UMA. 
a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As former President Donald Trump's explanation continues to evolve for why he had classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago home coming up on a year and seven months after he left the White House... So, too, have the questions evolved about his handling of those documents. In recent days, Trump has argued that his lawyers were fully cooperating in turning over the material. Then he argued that FBI agents who searched his home must have planted stuff. Now his team claims that Trump had a standing order to declassify documents. Well, here to help us fact check that last claim is Glenn Gerstel. He was the top lawyer at the National Security Agency until he stepped down in 2020. Welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So we know a sitting president has the power to declassify documents. Um, This latest explanation from Trump's team boils down, as far as I can tell, to that if he, as a sitting president, chose to remove papers from the Oval Office, chose to, I don't know, take them upstairs to his residence, that they were automatically declassified. Do you buy that? It's awfully hard to accept that uh, for both legal reasons and almost more importantly, practical reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had, ever since the United States introduced a very detailed system of classifying our nation's secrets going back to the time of President Truman right after World War II, uh, we've had a very, very specific procedure for how we classify the nation's secrets and then also, very importantly, how we declassify them. And that process, which is written down in both statutes and executive orders of the presidents that are binding on both Republican and Democratic presidents, say that there has to be a process. Someone needs to make an affirmative decision as to what kind of damage would result to national security, if any, as a result of a declassification. The agency that's involved that created the information in the first place has to be consulted. They get to say, gee, this would be a problem for us, or no, it wouldn't. And then it has to be memorialized and recorded and and that information disseminated out to the rest of the government. Why? Because if another agency the next morning got a request from the public or under a Freedom of Information Act to release the information, they would have to know what has been declassified. And if we have a situation in which someone, whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president, doesn't make a difference, says that uh, whenever I go somewhere or go upstairs or reach the third floor of the stairs, uh, documents that happen to be in my hand are just declassified and we don't know which ones they are. We can't figure out later on which ones they were. That obviously is not going to be a practical system for preserving the nation's secrets. This is the, if a tree falls in the forest, uh, does anyone hear it kind of argument we're heading for? Exactly. Let me invite you to take a step back with me and, and consider legally, is it, is is it even relevant whether Trump declassified these papers or didn't? Um, and I'm asking because the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago referenced three potential crimes that the FBI is investigating, three statutes, not one of which depends on whether these documents were classified. Does it matter? Actually, it doesn't. And I think what's listed in the search warrant is fascinating both for what it includes and what it doesn't include. What it doesn't include, interestingly, and the search warrant is limited to three specific statutes, And the one that it didn't cover is uh, a statute that makes it a crime to knowingly remove or retain classified documents. That statute wasn't listed. Why? 
I suspect that's because the Department of Justice wanted to be on extremely solid ground when they undertook this search warrant. And of course, they were also aware that maybe the president had claimed he had declassified the stuff. So they didn't list that section there because they wanted to list three other statutes that have nothing to do with whether a document is declassified. One is a provision of the Espionage Act that relates to the mishandling of something called national defense information, not quite the same as classified documents, similar. And the other two statutes relate generally to mishandling of official government documents, nothing to do with whether they've been declassified. They could be as declassified as possible, and you might still be guilty of a crime under these other two statutes, which relate to just mishandling of government records and storing them improperly. Hmm. So if someone who has handled a lot of classified documents, what question is foremost in your mind now? Where, where does this go? I think the key thing that we need to recognize is that we should try to step back and divorce this case from the, the politics and the emotion for a second and simply say that if the Department of Justice was faced with a situation in which someone, some former government employee, whether high-ranking or low-ranking, was known to be in possession of government documents, including ones that are apparently top secret, what would the government do? And in this case, the government would, in every case, say, let's try to get them back. We can't run the risk that they're in an insecure place, that perhaps Chinese spies or some other adversary would try to get them, uh, and they would, they would ask for them back. And the government has a strong reason to do so and a deep history of doing that almost without regard to who's involved. Uh, and. And this effort, first they asked for them back, then they issued a subpoena, and then finally they undertook a search to, to seize the documents, is exactly what I would expect the government to do. The question of whether there's a subsequent prosecution is a separate issue, and the Department of Justice will weigh all the facts and make a decision on that. But the step one is getting documents back uh, so that the, our national security is no longer at risk. Glenn Gerstel, thank you. Thank you. He was general counsel for the National Security Agency from 2015 until 2020. The novelist Salman Rushdie is now 75, but for the last 33 of those years, he's lived with a fatwa that called for his death, issued by the Supreme Leader of Iran at the time. Today, he is off a ventilator and slowly recovering, but still in critical condition. He was repeatedly stabbed during an onstage discussion last Friday in upstate New York. Iran has denied involvement, but a spokesman for its foreign ministry says it doesn't blame anyone for the attack except Rushdie himself and his supporters. So what exactly did Salman Rushdie write that would provoke an attempt on his life more than three decades after he wrote it? Let's bring in Robin Wright. She's covered Iran for decades, and she wrote about this case for The New Yorker. Robin, thank you for being here. Great to be with you. The book was called The Satanic Verses, and here's Rushdie speaking to NPR in 2012 about the controversial parts. My purpose was not to write only about Islam. It was to talk about the nature of revelation and also to suggest that when a big new idea comes into the world, it must answer two challenges. One is the challenge of how do you behave when you're weak, and the other, how do you behave when you're strong? Robin Wright, help us understand, why was this book considered offensive back in the late 1980s? The book was considered offensive because it portrayed the human weaknesses of the Prophet Muhammad, and in some ways 
in the eyes of some Muslims, questioned his credibility as the messenger of God. The first sentence and the headline of your New Yorker piece, they both note that the leader of Iran at the time never even read this book. So why then did Iran issue this edict and put a bounty on Rushdie's head? The Rushdie fatwa was in many ways an historic coincidence. The publication of his book intersected with a severe crisis to the Iranian, the very fragile Iranian revolutionary system. And Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the leader of the revolution, recognized that this was an important juncture. And he exploited the protests in the wider Islamic world about the Rushdie book. Remember, Iran did nothing for the first six months after it was published. Mm -hmm. And it was only after there were protests in neighboring Pakistan when several Muslims were killed in violent clashes with security forces that uh, Khomeini intervened and decreed that not only Rushdie, but anyone, anyone who translated or published his book in any language was condemned to death. So it was ultimately a political action, and it has played out ever since then uh, in the kind of internal, feisty internal debate within Iran between reformers who want to convert the state back to a kind of normal country and not make it a pariah anymore, and hardliners who are devoted to the original militant ideology of the regime. How did this all affect Salman Rushdie's life? Well, for the first decade, he was uh, under around-the-clock protection from Scotland Yard. He wrote about how many times he had to to move around in different hiding places. Uh, And it's had a widespread effect on others. The Japanese translator of his book was stabbed to death. The Norwegian publisher was attacked. uh, And uh, so was the Italian publisher. So this was a, you know, this had a kind of widespread rippling effect across the literary world. We've got about a minute left here. I'm curious, what do you make of the response inside Iran to this attack and Iran's official remarks about the matter? Iran denied any involvement, but the reality is just five days before the attack, uh, a hardline Iranian publication republished that original fatwa from 33 years ago. And the reaction to the attack among the hardline press has been almost jubilant, uh, calling Rushdie Satan and said he was on a path to hell. Um, and so this is a reflection of the ongoing impact of that original fatwa, even though Ayatollah Khomeini is long dead. Okay. That is Robin Wright. She has written several books about Iran and the Middle East, and she contributes to The New Yorker. Robin Wright, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopi. And coming up on All Things Considered, two names with long Republican Party history will be on ballot tomorrow. 
Wyoming voters appear ready to boot Liz Cheney as Sarah Palin looks for a comeback in Alaska. We'll look at what that says about the GOP. A decent day on Wall Street. The Dow ended up 151 points. The S&P 500 was up 17. The Nasdaq up 81. Massachusetts three casinos are reporting mixed financial results for July. The State Gaming Commission says Encore Boston Harbor brought in about $65 million in revenue. That's up about 10% from last July. The revenue fell 9% at MGM Springfield, and it fell 3.5% at Plain Ridge Park Casino in Plainville. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Red's Best with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. In sports, the Red Sox and Pirates play in Pittsburgh tomorrow night. Nick Pavetta expected to get the start. In the forecast, cloudy tonight, low 61 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high of 78. Cloudy tomorrow night, low 64. Isolated showers for Wednesday, otherwise partly sunny with highs in the low 70s. Right now in Boston, 77, partly cloudy. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Alaska and Wyoming are two of the least populous states in the country. But occasionally, they produce politicians with a big impact, like Sarah Palin from Alaska or Liz Cheney in Wyoming. They are both contesting Republican primaries tomorrow in their respective states. And those races are attracting a lot of national attention because they test the power of endorsements from former President Trump. Joining us now to break it all down is NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Hey, Ron. Good to be with you, Juana. Good to have you. So these are two of the reddest states in the country. Wyoming gave Trump his biggest vote margin in the country in 2020. Alaska was not far behind. So why would there be any question at all about his influence in these two states? Well, in Wyoming, Cheney has been a household name for a long time. Liz Cheney is the daughter of Dick Cheney, who was a congressman and, of course, vice president for eight years. She herself has been a landslide winner in the state three times. And in Congress, she's voted with Trump and the other Republicans more than 90 percent of the time. But after his supporters riot on January 6th, she did vote to impeach him. And she has continued to denounce him since. And she is the vice chair, of course, of the committee investigating that attack on the Capitol, and has in many ways been its most eloquent voice and Trump's most forceful accuser. Now, she knows that's been hurting her with the folks back home. The state party literally disowned her. Trump has endorsed someone against her. In fact, he did it way last fall. She is state legislator Harriet Hageman, and the latest polls show she is way ahead of Cheney at this time. 
Yeah, Cheney may be behind in the polls, but she has not backed off in her campaign this summer. Here is a little bit of the video that she put out last week. The lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen is insidious. It preys on those who love their country. It is a door Donald Trump opened to manipulate Americans to abandon their principles, to sacrifice their freedom, to justify violence, to ignore the rulings of our courts and the rule of law. So, Ron, if the polls hold as they are and Cheney does not win, what might she do next? She would be back in Washington to finish this current term and to finish the work of the January 6th committee. Beyond that, she has vowed to stay in the conversation and continue opposing Trump. I suspect we will see a lot of her on TV. Mm. And she might mount a campaign for president in 2024 in the Republican Party. Or if that avenue were not open, she might consider running as an independent or on a third party ticket. All right, so we'll see what comes next for Liz Cheney. Let's turn now to Sarah Palin. She was the first Republican woman nominated to be vice president, and she is now making a little bit of a comeback bid. How's that going? Palin's running to complete the unexpired term of the late Congressman Don Young. She has Trump's endorsement, and they are in some ways natural allies. She was among the first to endorse him in his first run for president, and he's returned the favor. But it might not be enough. Polling earlier this year showed 60 percent of Alaskans had an unfavorable view of former Governor Palin. And she was controversial in her home state even before she became a national figure. Now, if I recall correctly, she had the most votes in the first round of primary voting, right? Yes, she had 27 percent in a field of nearly 50 candidates, all listed on a single ballot regardless of party. But under Alaska's new voting system, which was voter approved last year, there was a second round for those who finished in the top four in the first. So tomorrow, the voters will be listing the remaining candidates in their order of preference. So having a plurality of first place votes is not enough if you don't get more than 50 percent. From there on, being the first choice of many voters can be offset by being the last choice of too many others. Okay, so there's the special election vote to take the seat now for the rest of this year. And then there's a separate vote to nominate someone for the new term that starts next year, right? Yes, the special election will be on one side of the ballot. Flip it over. There's the primary election on the other. But the names from the special will be there among the ones for the primary, among others. And that same top four finisher rule will be in effect. And there will be ranked choice voting in November. That's NPR's Ron Elving. Thank you so much. Thank you, Juana. Some cold summer treats are just too good to be enjoyed only when it is sweltering hot outside. Speaking personally, I am happy to eat ice cream year-round, especially if we're talking cookies and cream. And as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, there is one cold summertime dish that is also far too delicious to be enjoyed on just one side of an international border, the one separating the two Koreas. We're talking, of course, about naengmyeon, or Korean cold noodles. All right, the naengmyeon is here, and it is beautiful. It, the, the buckwheat noodles are arranged in a tidy little sort of bun or round shape. I can see some pine seeds floating in the broth, all beautifully prepared in a brass bowl. We're at Sol Noon, a restaurant in an upscale Seoul neighborhood. Autographs of celebrities who've dined here hang on the walls. The name Sol Noon actually means snow on Lunar New Year's Day. 
a nod to the fact that North Koreans relish cold noodles in winter as much or even more than in the dog days of summer. The restaurant's owner, Moon Yeon-hee, was born and raised in the North Korean capital, Pyongyang. She defected to the South six years ago before opening Seoul Noon. She believes her restaurant is truly unique. There's lots of Pyongyang Nengmong restaurants in South Korea, but we're the only place that's following the original North Korea recipe. Moon explains what makes Pyongyang cold noodles distinctive. First, there's the broth. Most places in South Korea only use beef for broth. We use three kinds of meat, chicken, pork, and beef, that create the complex aroma of meat. Whole buckwheat flour gives the noodles an earthy brown color. Toppings include beef, pork, pickled radish, cucumber, sliced egg, and a slice of pear. Three generations of Moon's family have made cold noodles, including at Pyongyang's Koryo Hotel, North Korea's second largest. She says that in Pyongyang, cold noodle restaurants have to be state-run because it's considered the capital's signature dish. Pyongyang Ningmong is the pride of Pyongyang. And when foreign dignitaries visit North Korea, that's where we bring them to show how huge our Pyongyang Ningmong restaurants are. Moon says that at some state-run restaurants, you can't get a table no matter how much money you have. There's a quota of 5,000 bowls of Nyingmong they must serve every day. So they distribute tickets for 500 or 100 bowls of noodles to factories and organizations, and they go eat in large groups. In recent years, private cafes and fast food restaurants have cropped up in the capital, serving burgers, sushi, and pizza to the Donju, North Korea's wealthy entrepreneurs. But when it comes to cold noodles, Moon says, they choose the Koryo Hotel. The main customers are party officials and their children and people who do business under the protection of the party. People who import things from Russia and China sell them in North Korea. With their new restaurant firmly established in Seoul, Moon and her family are now hoping to serve up their cold noodles in new lands. They're considering opening a new eatery in Los Angeles next year. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up on All Things Considered, more details as Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, becomes a target of a criminal investigation into election interference in Georgia, accused of trying to reverse the 2020 results. Celtics fans may have a new item for their Christmas wish list this year. There are reports the Seas will host the Milwaukee Bucks on Christmas Day this year. The NBA is expected to release the schedule for the season later this week. Checking the forecast, cloudy tonight, low 61 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high of 78. We're at 77, partly cloudy. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Tell us about this tax loophole. What is it? So first of all, it's called carried interest. And the truth of the matter is, it is one of the great inequalities of our tax code. And uniquely, it is a gaping hole that is obvious to just about anybody that looks at it. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily. 
from the New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from in. NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Rudy Giuliani's defense team says he's a target of a criminal probe into potential election interference in Fulton County, Georgia. As a personal lawyer for then-President Donald Trump, Giuliani publicly led failed efforts in multiple states to overturn the 2020 election results. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler has more. Giuliani is a central figure in the probe looking to see if Trump and his allies broke the law while attempting to overturn his 2020 election defeat. He's made numerous false claims about Georgia's election results, including baselessly accusing election workers of manipulating results. Those workers face death threats. The news comes as Giuliani is slated to testify in Atlanta Wednesday in closed-door proceedings. Meanwhile, a federal judge says South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham must testify before a special grand jury in Atlanta. Graham is accused of calling Georgia's Secretary of State and asking about ways to throw out absentee ballots in the 2020 election. A Maryland company is asking the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, to authorize a new COVID-19 booster. NPR's Rob Stein has more on the request. A company called Novavax wants the FDA to authorize its vaccine as an alternative booster for anyone age 18 or older who was previously vaccinated with any of the COVID-19 vaccines. The FDA authorized the Novavax shots as a primary vaccine in July in the hopes that it might entice some of the people who still haven't gotten vaccinated. The Novavax vaccine uses a more traditional technology than the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccines. Federal officials have been urging more people to get boosters to protect them against the highly transmissible BA5 Omicron subvariant, which has been driving a new surge of infections, even among people who have been previously vaccinated or infected. That's Rob Stein. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. The State Board of Education votes 8-3 to to make it harder to pass the English MCAS in 10th grade. Students have to pass the exam in order to graduate high school. WBUR's Max Larkin reports. 98% of public commenters, including three school districts, opposed the move, saying it puts English learners at greater risk of failing and dropping out. Board member Darlene Lombos pressed Associate Education Commissioner Rob Curtin on how the proposal changed after hearing those voices. Given that there were over 200 opposed to it, there was nothing that was incorporated, any feedback or recommendations? That's correct. Okay, thank you. Lombos and two other members voted against the move, saying it undermined public trust. The move's supporters said under state law, all high school students must show content mastery before graduating. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. State and city transportation officials are preparing for the shutdown of the Orange Line for a month. The closure starts Friday night for repairs and safety upgrades. Shuttle buses and beefed-up commuter rail and Silver Line service will pick up the slack. Still, State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver expects it to be a difficult few weeks. We are urging travelers to evaluate their commute and, if possible, adjust. Look for a route that avoids the shuttle diversion if you must drive in. And shift your travel time to off-peak hours. If possible, avoid the region altogether until the diversion period has concluded. He expects severe traffic congestion during the shutdown. Boston's new police commissioner says the department will be committed to transparency and accountability. Michael Cox begins his job as head of the department now that he's been sworn in. Cox says the city needs to reimagine policing. If we want to meet this moment, 
we need to come together and successfully change how we police. To do this, we'll be looking to partner with the community and make this a reality through listening. Cox, who was black, sued the department in the 1990s after fellow officers beat him when they mistook him for a suspect. He served in the department for some three decades before most recently leading the Ann Arbor, Michigan police. Senator Ed Markey uh, plans uh, wraps up a visit to Taiwan. He led a delegation of U.S. lawmakers on the two-day trip. Markey met with uh, Taiwan's president and other leaders on the island. His visit follows that of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi earlier this month. Taiwan is self-governing, but China claims the island as its own. China began conducting military exercises near Taiwan following Pelosi's trip and is announcing more in response to Markey's visit. In the forecast, uh, cloudy tonight, low 61 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high of 78. Cloudy tomorrow night, low 64. We'll have uh, isolated showers for Wednesday, otherwise partly sunny with highs in the low 70s. And for Thursday, sunny skies with temps hitting the low 80s. Right now in Boston, 77, partly cloudy. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at Avast.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A special grand jury in Georgia has been investigating efforts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election results there. And today, two big developments. Today, uh, first, Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has been informed he is now a target in the criminal investigation. And a federal judge ruled that South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham must testify as a witness. Georgia Public Broadcasting and political reporter Stephen Fowler is here with the updates. Hey, Stephen. Hey there. All right. So uh, development number one, this shift that Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, is now a target of the probe instead of just a witness. He's going to appear behind closed doors in Atlanta on Wednesday. What changed? So Rudy Giuliani is one of the central figures to understanding the months-long effort to overturn Joe Biden's victory in Georgia. One big component is his involvement with these unofficial hearings before Georgia lawmakers after the election as part of an effort to convince him to reverse Trump's defeat using fantastical and false claims of fraud. Here's some of what he said back in 2020. It's your responsibility if a false and fraudulent count is submitted to the United States government. And it's clear that the count you have right now is false. There's also questions around what role Giuliani played in orchestrating alternate slates of GOP electors in battleground states like Georgia. So there's a lot the grand jury would probably want to discuss with them. Now, Giuliani and other Trump lawyers were subpoenaed as witnesses to appear before the grand jury earlier this summer. And his attorneys tell NPR it wasn't until today they knew he was considered a target. Hmm. They received a phone call from the Fulton County DA's office saying he's under investigation and not just part of the investigation. 
Now, he's slated still to appear this Wednesday to testify behind closed doors. We don't yet know whether this revelation will affect what he says. Okay, let's go to development number two, this involving uh, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. What does the grand jury want from him? First of all, he's being sought as a material witness. Unlike Giuliani, he's not a target. They want to learn more about several calls Graham made to Georgia's Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger after the 2020 election. Graham allegedly asked about absentee ballot rejections and signature matching, and Brad Raffensperger said he felt like the senator was trying to get him to toss out ballots already counted. Now, Lindsey Graham tried to quash a request to testify, saying that call was protected by the speech or debate clause of the Constitution and that as a high-ranking government official, he shouldn't have to testify. But a federal judge ruled today the speech or debate clause doesn't protect political actions like efforts to, quote, cajole or exhort officials to alter their practices. Also, the ruling says the grand jury actually has questions for Graham beyond those calls, so he's got an answer to that. And, of course, Senator Graham says he will appeal. So just quickly, Stephen, put put both these developments into context for us uh, in terms of the broader investigation in Georgia and, and all the other inquiries into Trump's legal issues. Sure. The Georgia case has slowly been building towards Trump inner circle as the DA appears to be building a case that state laws were broken in the failed attempt to undo his defeat. Who gets indicted and what crimes they committed won't come out for a while. Also, there's several other investigations into Trump, so there's a lot of pressure points as he weighs whether to run for president again in 2024. That is Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Later this month, the White House plans to mark the anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. President Biden wants to recognize and honor U.S. service members and allies who served during two decades of war. But the withdrawal also marks an inflection point for Biden's presidency, the moment when his popularity fell and never fully recovered. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has more. And just a warning to listeners, you're going to hear the sounds of gunfire. Last August, the world was shocked as Afghans crowded the Kabul airport amid gunfire. Desperate people chasing a U.S. Air Force plane, some even hanging on as it took off, and then tragically falling to their deaths. At the White House, President Biden was defiant. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. He had promised to bring U.S. troops home, Biden said it would be a responsible and safe exit, but the way it happened was chaotic and tragic. 13 U.S. service members were killed in a suicide bombing, and thousands of Afghan nationals who had helped the U.S. fight the Taliban were left behind. It was a pivotal moment for Biden's presidency. Every president has a crisis early in their terms. That's John Gans, a former Pentagon official who has written about White Houses during times of war. He compares the political fallout for Biden to what former President John F. Kennedy saw after the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba. Every president since has had something that has helped sort of puncture, you know, the momentum, the appeal, the thing, the, the whatever sort of capture they have of the American imagination. During the withdrawal, Biden's approval ratings plunged and his polls have remained negative ever since. Doug Sosnick. A former advisor to President Bill Clinton says it wasn't just Afghanistan that started Biden's fall from grace. COVID-19 was surging and inflation was beginning to accelerate. But Sosnick says the bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan really hurt Biden. 
because it undercut the president's image. If bringing competence back to government is one of the kind of hallmarks of a candidacy, then I think the optics of the Afghanistan withdrawal go completely against the sort of rationale of why you should have voted for Biden. The White House promised a full account of what went wrong. Those reports are still not complete. John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, told NPR that no military operation is flawless. He said Biden never concerned himself with approval ratings, but strongly believed that ending the war was in the U.S. national interest. I would argue that the events of the last year bear that out, that we were able to focus on other threats and challenges, not keeping a couple of thousand or perhaps even more troops on the ground in Afghanistan. Instead, the White House is focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and ongoing challenges with China. And last month, Biden approved a drone strike to kill al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawari. While the withdrawal helped start Biden's slide in the polls, now voters are more concerned about the economy, says Mohammed Yunus, Gallup's editor-in-chief. All I'm saying is it's, it's really been a very long time since foreign policy has been the factor in a presidency sort of turning uh, sour. These days, Afghanistan doesn't even come up in focus groups with voters, says Celinda Lake, a Democratic strategist. Nobody raises it at all anymore. Um, People are completely focused on domestic economy right now. More recently, Biden has had a string of victories on domestic issues. But so far, it's only given him a small bump in the polls. Doug Sosnick, the Clinton advisor, says it's too early to know whether Biden can change the political tides. When you have a narrative that's starting to become negative and events occur to reinforce that negative narrative, it creates even more negative momentum. Biden himself remains optimistic, telling those who will listen that momentum is shifting. But it will take time to see. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Large wind turbines have become a common sight in America, from Texas up through the Dakotas. Still, wind power accounts for less than 10 percent of the nation's electricity generation. Now, the Inflation Reduction Act that's awaiting President Biden's signature extends a tax credit for wind energy production through 2025. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports on some of the hurdles the industry will face in ramping up production. It's common to find yourself driving in Iowa and suddenly be surrounded by dozens of massive wind turbines twirling in the wind on either side of the interstate. At night, flashing red lights flicker from atop the turbines to alert airplanes. Utility company MidAmerican Energy has plans to build dozens in northwest Iowa's Woodbury County. Some landowners there, like farmer Daniel Hare, showed up at a board of supervisors meeting there last week, and they weren't happy. I think maybe there's a time and a place for wind, but it's not here in this county where all these people live. My argument to them is it's not meant to be here in Woodbury County. Build elsewhere. Landowners complained they didn't want the towers on their landscape, that the flashing lights would be bothersome at night, and that the money the local county would bring in just wasn't worth it. The supervisors are considering increasing the distance between towers from 1,200 feet to 2,500 feet. 
MidAmerican pointed out that longer distance would allow someone a half mile away to decide what you can do on your property, and it would severely hinder the project. Heather Zeichel with the American Clean Power Association says the pros of wind energy outweigh any cons. Wind is a free resource. It is not subject to the whims of what's happening in Ukraine or the global commodities prices for natural gas. Uh, farmers and communities are benefiting from the, the taxes and fees paid uh, to landowners and, and state and local governments. Zeichel says Iowa can be a model for the rest of the country because a whopping 40 percent of the state's electricity comes from wind power and it garners bipartisan support. MidAmerican pointed out property owners in Woodbury County would receive between 76 and 96 million dollars over 40 years of the project. While some people in this part of the state are resisting plans to expand wind power, others have had turbines on their land for years. Like David Johnson, who has four turbines on his farm near the Minnesota border on the other side of the state, he receives $2,300 a month from the turbines. Oh my gosh, you cannot believe the, the positive cash flows that that creates and minimal impact. Johnson says the regular payments from the turbines allowed his adult son to come back and work on the farm. While the industry and environmental groups are banking on landowners like Johnson to allow new turbines, there's another challenge across the country. Increasing the storage and transmission lines to pump that energy throughout the country. Carrie Johansson is with the nonprofit Iowa Environmental Council. She says a new set of transmission lines went up this summer in the Midwest. That will greatly enhance the ability of all the states in the region to increase adoption of renewable energy um, and then share those renewable energy resources across state lines. If the wind is blowing in western Iowa, maybe it's not blowing in western Michigan. Um, and there's the ability for Iowa then to benefit from selling that wind when we have access into Michigan and then vice versa. Wherever the wind is blowing, environmental scientists hope this historic investment in clean energy will help steer the country away from the worst impacts of climate change and that more landowners remain open for these turbines to fill the countryside and provide clean energy. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up on All Things Considered, a closer look as India turns 75 and its democracy, the world's largest, is under threat from authoritarian rule. Coming to City Space on Monday, August 15th, a primary debate with the Republican candidates for Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor. Free in-person and virtual tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In sports, Red Sox and Pirates play in Pittsburgh tomorrow. Nick Pavetta expected to get the start. In the forecast, uh, cloudy tonight with a low of 61 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, high 78. Low 64 with clouds tomorrow night. And right now in Boston, partly cloudy skies, 77 degrees. This is WBUR. The fog of war, an impenetrable tangle of red tape, and how an Afghan interpreter, with the help of his friend, a U.S. Marine, cut through the chaos and escaped Kabul just before the city fell to the Taliban last year. We'll hear their story and their view of what's happening in Afghanistan now. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today marks 75 years since India emerged from British rule. That freedom began with bloodshed, the partition of colonial India into two new nations and mass migration across their shared border. Now India has become the world's largest democracy. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Mumbai. 75 years ago, India had what its first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, famously called a tryst with destiny. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. Colonial India awoke to become two free nations, Pakistan as a homeland for Muslims, and India envisioned by Nehru, Mahatma Gandhi and its other founders as a secular republic with a Hindu majority. That religious divide sparked violence, though. More than a million people were killed, says historian Tanika Sarkar. It's true that India got this great gift of democracy, but the way partition came about through unimaginable violence, not inflicted by the British this time, but by Indians against each other, that cast a very long shadow. Gandhi's biographer Ramachandra Guha says over the decades, people said India was too big or too diverse or too poor for democracy to last. There were periodic uh, obituaries written for India, you know, that India would break up and balkanize. It would come under a military dictatorship. There would be large-scale famine. None of that has happened. Instead, India today celebrated a festival of democracy. raising the tricolor flag over Delhi's 17th century red fort, while a military band played the national anthem. In a televised speech, Prime Minister Narendra Modi called India inherently democratic. It inherent the mother of all democracies, he said. But whether it's a healthy democracy, that's another matter altogether. Sarkar, the historian, says India has fallen in global democracy indices in recent years. Modi's Hindu nationalist government has eroded the free press, politicized the civil service, co-opted the judiciary, and treated some 200 million Muslims, the country's largest minority, as second-class citizens. India does have one of the world's fastest-growing economies. Life expectancy at the time of independence was around 37. Now it's nearly double that, Sarkar notes. The standards of living for the poorest have improved over the years, but not as much as it should have been. There is mass illiteracy. Wealth is highly concentrated. Modi is nevertheless one of the most popular prime ministers in Indian history. He's a Hindu nationalist who's brought faith into politics in a way that many voters like. Romala Tapar is sort of the grand dame of Indian historians. She's 90, so she remembers when India won its freedom in 1947 and recalls how nationalism back then wasn't a bad thing. What did nationalism mean to us in, soon after independence? It meant secularism, democracy, and the concept of a nation state. Religion was not to interfere in politics. Hmm? It has done so. Religion is back in Indian politics, she says. And considering what happened at partition 75 years ago, that makes some Indians nervous. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Mumbai.
Yet another series that explores the triumphs and challenges of the Lakers hits TV today. Hulu is releasing a 10-episode docu-series called Legacy, the true story of the L.A. Lakers. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says this program feels like a pointed answer to, well, another TV show. One thing I like most about Hulu's series is hearing directly from the man himself, Dr. Jerry Buss, who even shocked himself when he bought the Lakers in 1979. I must admit, I'm, I'm kind of stunned I'm in a daze. Uh, I think it's going to take months before it slowly seeps in what has actually been done here. Buss, who died in 2013 after a long battle with cancer, shows up in Hulu's docuseries mostly through archival clips. A longtime sports fan with a doctorate in chemistry and a bustling real estate empire, Buss shook up the sports world in the days before pro basketball was as popular as it is now. There he is, his first shot as an owner. You think he likes it? Hulu's series presents Buss as a bit sharper and more in control than his slightly goofy portrayal by John C. Riley in HBO's controversial scripted series called Winning Time. This may not be a surprise, given that Buss's daughter, Jeannie, the team's current CEO and controlling owner, is an executive producer on Hulu's show. It was a pretty big risk for my dad to go all in and buy a team, because at that time, no one in the NBA was making money. Jeannie Buss's recollections are an important part of Hulu's series, which uses a fairly standard sports documentary approach. It traces how Jerry Buss built the team into a sports and pop culture powerhouse with multiple championships, creating the Laker girls dance team and courting celebrities to attend games, as rapper Snoop Dogg explains. Coming to sit courtside after becoming famous is probably the best thing that can happen for you in entertainment because you know that you're an attraction at the attraction watching the basketball game, but you know the basketball players are watching you. Lakers stars who complained about unflattering portrayals in winning time get a chance to set the record straight here, including Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, former coach Jerry West, and Irvin Magic Johnson, who admired Jerry Buss's rebellious spirit. Dr. Buss always thought outside the box. See, all the owners were like this. Oh, okay, you do it like this. You wear ties. Dr. Buss said, I'm not wearing a tie. Everybody said, gotta wear suits. Dr. Buss said, I'm wearing blue jeans. Well, you gotta date somebody your age. I'm dating somebody who's 20. Dr. Buss was like, I don't care what you guys do. This is who I am. Later, the docuseries details how Jeannie Buss and her five siblings jockeyed for power within the organization. But Hulu's show works best when exploring issues beyond the world of sports nerds, particularly when Magic Johnson retires from the Lakers in 1991 after announcing he has the HIV virus. Jeannie Buss says the news hit her father hard. I'd only seen my dad cry twice in my life. Once when his mother, my grandmother, passed away. And that day... Given the control Jeannie Buss and the Lakers organization had here, there's a sense of punches pulled, especially on the scant attention given to Magic Johnson's legendary womanizing. As entertaining as this docuseries can be, that control left me wondering what might have been left on the cutting room floor, and how much better the docuseries might be if they had kept a little more of it in. I'm Eric Deggins. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. 
featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming up on All Things Considered, many people in Afghanistan are struggling to have basic needs met as the Taliban mark a year since retaking power in the country. In sports, the Red Sox and Pirates play in Pittsburgh tomorrow night. And in the forecast, cloudy skies overnight, low of 61 degrees. Tomorrow, we're looking at partly sunny skies with a high of 78. Low 64 and cloudy tomorrow night. Some isolated showers Wednesday. Otherwise, it'll be partly sunny with highs in the low 70s. And uh, for Thursday, hitting the low 80s and bright sunshine. Right now, 76 degrees, partly cloudy skies. It's 6 o'clock. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Taliban took over a year ago, and now many people in Afghanistan are struggling. You have doctors and nurses who are not getting paid salaries. You have hospitals that do not have the money to purchase medicine, to purchase equipment. It's Monday, August 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopian. Also this hour, a discussion with the president of the FBI Agents Association about recent threats against agents and calls to defund the FBI. A major long-term ecological study taking place across the U.S. has been releasing a potent greenhouse gas into streams that run through national parks and forests. Critics say it needs to stop. And the cost of living only seems to go up. More on Marketplace at 6.30. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration is launching a national campaign to showcase the White House's accomplishments ahead of the midterm elections. As NPR's Barbara Spahn explains, the administration is aiming to capitalize on a string of recent policy wins to boost momentum heading into November. President Biden will embark on a Building a Better America tour, traveling across the country to highlight how a recent climate, health care and tax package passed by Democrats will help lower prescription drug costs, utility bills and other health care premiums. It's a message Democrats hope will resonate with voters ahead of the midterm elections, where historically the party in power loses seats. As part of the media blitz, the administration also plans to showcase how it passed multiple bipartisan measures like gun safety, infrastructure, semiconductor chip production, and veterans' health legislation. 
Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. The Justice Department is asking a federal judge to keep the affidavit for the search of former President Donald Trump's home under seal. There remain compelling reasons, including to protect the integrity of an ongoing law enforcement investigation that implicates national security that support keeping the affidavit sealed is required, the Justice Department wrote in a filing today that was in response to media requests. Unsealing the affidavit is different from making the warrant public. The FBI searched Mar-a-Lago and removed boxes of documents, some of which were deemed classified. Federal judges ruled Republican Senator Lindsey Graham will have to testify in front of the special grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Graham has been fighting a subpoena in court, as WABE Sam Greenglass reports. Prosecutors want to ask Graham about calls to Georgia's Secretary of State and his staff after the 2020 election. Graham says the calls were protected by a clause in the U.S. Constitution that shields lawmakers from testifying about activity in Congress. A judge disagreed, saying Graham may be asked about more than calls, like any coordination with the Trump campaign's attempts to disrupt Georgia's vote. That would be of great significance, the judge wrote. The grand jury has subpoenaed many of former President Trump's allies, including Rudy Giuliani, who's slated to testify this week. Graham says he will appeal the ruling. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. An Iranian government official is denying Tehran had any involvement in last week's stabbing of author Salman Rushdie. However, a spokesman for Iran's foreign ministry also sought to justify what happened, in essence, blaming Rushdie himself for the attack. Rushdie, who for years had a bounty on his head from Islamic religious leaders over his book, The Satanic Verses, was stabbed multiple times by a 24-year-old man who rushed the stage at a literary event in western New York State. Rushdie survived but remains hospitalized. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 151 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. You may be one of them. Many commuters affected by the upcoming Orange Line closure are thinking of driving but state transportation officials hope you'll consider alternatives or even staying home. The concern is extra cars on the road will cause gridlock on Boston's already crowded roads. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports. Traffic could get much worse when the entire Orange Line shuts down starting Friday for key repairs. That means shuttle buses will replace subway trains for 30 days. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver urges people to avoid getting in their cars. Some transit users may be considering driving as an alternative to shuttle buses. I assure you that that is not a good option, and you should look to other transit options such as commuter rail. Traffic congestion is expected to be severe. Gulliver says people who don't need to come to Boston should avoid the city for the next month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The state is easing some of the coronavirus precautions it recommends for grades K through 12. The state says it will not recommend mask mandates, contact tracing, or surveillance testing of asymptomatic students and staff. Today's guidance says the school should focus efforts on vulnerable and symptomatic individuals. The U.K. is the first country to approve Moderna's Omicron-specific coronavirus vaccine for use as booster shots. The Cambridge-based company's injection targets both the original strain and the Omicron variant of the virus. Moderna researchers believe the new booster may be strong enough to provide year-long protection. Moderna is also seeking approval for the booster in Australia, Canada and the EU, with more applications to come. 
The two Republican candidates for lieutenant governor faced off in a debate today at WBUR City Space. The candidates sparred over the value of an endorsement from former President Donald Trump. WBUR's Sydney Bowles reports. Trump has endorsed Jeff Deal for governor. He's running alongside fellow former state rep Leah Cole Allen. Allen says most Americans were better off in the last administration. I think that the policies that we had under the former president are what we are running on. We had energy independence, we had uh, border security, we had um, low unemployment rates. Former state rep Kate Campanelli distanced herself and her running mate, Chris Doty, from the former president. You know, I think a Donald Trump endorsement is guaranteeing a lose in November here in Massachusetts. We're not focused on national politics. Chris and I are here to focus on Massachusetts issues. The primary is next month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. In sports, the Red Sox and Pittsburgh Pirates will play tomorrow night. Nick Pavetta expected to start. In the forecast, a cloudy tonight, low 61 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high of 78. Cloudy tomorrow night, low 64. Some uh, off and on showers Wednesday, otherwise partly sunny with highs in the low 70s. Right now, 76, partly cloudy in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. On this day one year ago, Kabul fell to the Taliban. With that, they were ruling Afghanistan again after 20 years out of power. So what has this day been like for Afghans? NPR's Dia Hadid joins us from the Afghan capital. Hi, Dia. Hi, Wana. So tell us, what was today like? Well, Taliban security forces, mostly young men, were doing victory laps around Kabul in convoys of jeeps, cars, and motorbikes. Some of them were waving the black and white Taliban flag. Some guys were brandishing assault rifles, and some had pasted flowers to their cars and were wearing sequin bandanas. But it wasn't some mass event. Most Afghans in Kabul, at least, appeared to stay home. There weren't families out or anything like that. Um, We walked over to an army jeep that was blaring pro-Taliban tunes. These are male singers who praise fighters who wrested Kabul from their enemies. There I spoke to one participant, a young fighter. His name is Samiullah, he's 23, and we chat in Arabic because he learned it in a madrasa or religious seminary. And he tells me they're celebrating because they liberated Afghanistan from foreign occupation. And he says this is an example for other Muslim countries. But he also says life has been hard. He says Afghans are hungry. And he blames sanctions imposed by America and the international community. With daily life being so tough for many, how are other Afghans feeling about today's anniversary? Well, it's hard to tell. You know, some are likely to feel pleased because security is generally much better. But the Taliban have silenced those who oppose them, like women who held a rare protest on Saturday to demand their rights. See, the Taliban have banned girls from going to secondary school. They've pushed most women out of work. They've ordered them to cover up and stay home. And Taliban security forces swiftly ended that protest by opening fire above the women's heads. But 
women at least are still trying to show that they're resisting. Like today, one young woman sent me a clip of herself singing in Dari. It's a very catchy tune in Dari and the song's message is, don't be afraid of the Taliban. Well, that raises the question, how fearful are people of the Taliban a year after they took power? I would say with the exception of these young, defiant women, most people appear to be nearly entirely consumed with just trying to get by. Mm. Um, there's a humanitarian crisis here. The UN estimates that more than 90% of all Afghans aren't getting enough food to eat and millions need aid just not to starve. And that's mainly because of sanctions to punish Taliban leaders who are now in the government. And that's had a disastrous impact on the economy. To understand this a bit better, listen here to Samira Sayed Rahman. She's with the International Rescue Committee. It's one of the really big aid groups that works in Afghanistan. I've been traveling to clinics and hospitals. Here you see, you know, there are three babies in a single incubator. I talk to nurses who haven't been paid in months. So the sanctions that have been placed on the Taliban, we have a few hundred people in power, but 38 million people are suffering. And Dio, what is being done to help all of those people? Well, the UN has an enormous, enormous presence here, and they spent about $4 billion effectively to stop Afghans from starving. The problem is they say they need about $8 billion because the need is so great, but it's unlikely donors are going to give substantially more money. We hear from multiple sources that they're fed up with the Taliban. Um, Western donors in particular accuse the group of breaking promises they made when they first came to power, like letting all girls go to school. There are so many challenges at this point. What are the Taliban's priorities now? Well, looking forward, the Taliban are focused on revenue raising, they're mining, they're doing customs taxes. And one Western representative we spoke to said he was actually impressed by how quickly the group takes decisions and gets moving. But that revenue, about two and a half billion, is nowhere near substituting for the enormous amount of aid that Afghanistan currently needs. And Frankly, it appears that hardliners among the Taliban have taken the upper hand in decision making and they've issued repeated statements that they won't compromise on their values to appease the West. So it's unlikely they're going to soften on women's rights and the country is likely to remain mired in crisis. That is NPR's Dia Hadid speaking with us from Kabul on the first anniversary of the Taliban takeover. Thank you, Dia. You're welcome. The FBI is on high alert. It's warning of a spike in threats to law enforcement officers following last week's court-authorized search of former President Trump's Florida home. Those threats have proliferated online, also in the real world. An armed man stormed an FBI field office in Cincinnati last week. Well, FBI Special Agent Brian O'Hare has condemned these threats. He's calling on other leaders to do the same. He is president of the FBI Agents Association. That's a nonprofit, non-governmental organization that supports active FBI special agents. And he's with me now, Mr. O'Hare. Welcome. Thank you, Ms. Kelly. I'm happy to be here. I, I want to start by asking about this joint intelligence bulletin that came down on Friday. This was released by the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, warning about this jump in threats. Can you give us any more detail about what's in that bulletin? I can't give you any more detail other than to say that the FBI and DHS has been putting out products similar to this for many, many years 
in an effort to warn our state, local, and federal partners about the threats and risks that might impact their workforce on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, uh, you said they do this, have done this for many years. This is this is a regular thing. Is there anything that leaps out at you in terms of just the tone or the urgency of the warning here, without giving details? Well, I think the threat stream directed at federal law enforcement and the FBI in particular is notable. Um, I don't recall a threat stream similar to this in the last many years, and it's troubling. Uh, It's unacceptable, and it should be condemned by all who are aware of it. Oh, you said in the last many years, and I'll note you are an active FBI special agent. You've been one for more than two decades. Yes, ma'am, 23 years. Yeah. Any advice uh, to fellow officers? Is advice coming down to do anything differently um, in your work lives, in your personal lives, as you take account of these rising threats? Well, I appreciate the interest and the question. However, it's just not prudent to describe what we might or might not do in work or at home to deal with these threats. I will say you that when you're in the office of the FBI today, just like every other day, Special agents and professional support employees are doing their jobs to protect the American people. Uh, That doesn't change. It continues on as we speak. I I mean, I will say one of the things going through my mind as I watched those events play out in Cincinnati last week was thinking, wow, they must be battening down the hatches at field offices across the country. And then thinking, but I would assume FBI offices were already pretty secure. Any additional steps to secure facilities? Uh, You know, again, that's not something that I would share uh, if I was familiar with all those steps. Um, You know, the FBI is not immune to threats in the same way that state and local partners have been dealing with threats for a very long time. Uh, We all have to be vigilant and uh, look out for each other, and that's what we continue to do. I know um, in your association, there's something like 14,000 active uh, FBI special agents, former um, agents as well. What's the conversation? What are you hearing from them? Well, it gets a little old uh, being threatened. Uh, It's just it's a climate of uh, acceptance of violence that needs to be changed. And, And we're no different than anyone else. We don't see violence as being productive. In fact, it's counter to the interests of legitimate concerns uh, that people might have about any action undertaken by the government or law enforcement in particular. Uh, the violence does not move the needle. It, it detracts from what it is you may be interested in. And we hope that it subsides very soon. Is it getting in the way of the work? No, again, I, you know, we're doing the work. Um, the work continues regardless. Uh, work continued by the FBI throughout COVID. It presented unique and unusual challenges to us, but we continue to do, do the work uh, that the American people expect of us. Yeah. So what went through your mind as you watched that attack last week in Cincinnati? Well, you know, that's an action that took place for whatever reasons in an atmosphere with many people calling for violence against the FBI. Uh, What I find incredibly important is the need for every leader, whether they're elected or not, every leader with a voice, every leader with a following should publicly denounce violence against law enforcement unconditionally. 
and that call should be irrespective of federal, state, or local status. Law enforcement uh, can do a much better job if it's not under constant threat of attack. What specific words would you like to hear them say? Uh, Anyone who's a leader in this country should be condemning unequivocally threats of violence against law enforcement. I, I have heard some touch on the subject, but then it seems somewhat conditional based on other factors. Unequivocal violence against law enforcement is a problem and should not be tolerated. That is FBI Special Agent Brian O'Hare. He's also president of the FBI Agents Association. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up on All Things Considered, a major long-term ecological study taking place across the U.S. has been releasing a potent greenhouse gas into streams that run through national parks and forests. Critics say it needs to stop. A decent day on Wall Street. The Dow ended up 151 points. The S&P 500 was up 17, and the Nasdaq up 81 points. Starbucks wants the National Labor Relations Board to suspend all union elections at its stores. The company says a board employee claims the NLRB has improperly coordinated with union organizers. The Labor Board says it doesn't comment on open cases. More than 200 Starbucks stores in the U.S. have voted to unionize, including at least a dozen in Massachusetts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. And Worcester Cultural Coalition, August 17th, New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill hosts a swing night concert and dance. More at worcesterculture.org. In sports, the Red Sox and Pirates play in Pittsburgh tomorrow night. Nick Pavetta expected to take the mound for the Sox. In the forecast, cloudy tonight, low 61 degrees. Tomorrow, it'll be partly sunny with a high of 78. A low of 64 with clouds tomorrow night. Isolated showers for Wednesday. Otherwise, it'll be partly sunny with highs in the low 70s. And on Thursday, bright sunshine with highs in the low 80s. Well, right now in Boston, we've got partly cloudy skies, 76 degrees. This is WBUR. Tell us about this tax loophole. What is it? So first of all, it's called carried interest. And the truth of the matter is, it is one of the great inequalities of our tax code. And uniquely, it is a gaping hole that is obvious to just about anybody that looks at it. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from the New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The biggest and most important ecological study in the United States is facing criticism because its work involves the deliberate release of the most potent known greenhouse gas. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports on why it's been doing this in national parks and forests and why some people say it should stop. 
The gas is called sulfur hexafluoride. It's about 23,000 times more effective at trapping heat than carbon dioxide, and it persists in the atmosphere for thousands of years. The gas mostly gets used by the electric power industry, but for decades, scientists have sometimes used it too. We always knew it was a greenhouse gas, but we always said, well, we're using just a tiny amount of it. Bob Hall is an ecologist at the University of Montana. He's bubbled this synthetic gas into streams to measure how quickly gases can move from the water into the atmosphere. That's important to know for understanding stuff like what role streams and rivers might play in climate change. The beauty of sulfur hexafluoride is we only have to add it in very tiny quantities and it's really, really easy to measure. And it's perfectly unreactive. We're not doing anything to the ecosystem by adding it. It's not reacting with anything. It's not poisoning anything. Recently, though, Hall stopped using this gas and switched to another one, in part because to him, it just seemed ironic to release this powerful greenhouse gas when studying carbon dioxide and climate change. But sulfur hexafluoride is still used by one major ecology study. It's the National Ecological Observatory Network, AKA NEON. NEON has been called the largest investment in ecological research in the United States ever. It will run for 30 years, making lots of different measurements at sites across the nation, in part to track the effects of climate change. Critics say a study like this shouldn't be releasing such a notorious gas when there's alternatives. They're doing these experiments on public lands like um, national parks and national forests, which this doesn't fit with the mission of these agencies at all. Chandra Rosenthal is with a watchdog group called Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. She says so far, NEON has released about 108 pounds of the gas. That's equivalent to burning more than a million pounds of coal. Her group has obtained internal records like emails. They show that in 2019, a government scientist at Yellowstone National Park questioned why NEON was releasing sulfur hexafluoride there. That scientist's concerns were soon shared with officials who oversee other public lands where NEON was using this gas. And the documents show they were unhappy. But they haven't really had the authority to do anything about the fact that this stuff is being used. In response to the questions raised by those officials, NEON did consult with technical experts who felt that the study could use far less of this gas, that it wasn't actually necessary for the study to keep taking these measurements year after year. Kaylin Cawley works at Battelle, the nonprofit research organization that operates NEON. She says the plan is to phase out this gas. We have discontinued it recently at several of our sites, but not all of them. Now, the amount of gas used in this study is really, really small compared to the vast amounts of greenhouse gases being released by power production and other sources. Still, Walter Dodds gets the concerns. He's a streams researcher at Kansas State University who served as one of NEON's advisors. He says the climate crisis is making people rethink all kinds of things. I, th I think it may be, you know, an overreaction of sorts, but... Um, it's completely understandable as well. We, we all are worried about what our own footprints are. The National Science Foundation, which funds NEON, told NPR that it supports the current effort to minimize its use of this gas. But Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility is asking this agency to stop releasing it on public lands immediately. 
Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. Since arriving in North America, Christian missionaries have been trying to convert Native Americans to their faith. The practice continues, but after one distributed a pamphlet the Oglala Lakota found offensive, the tribe responded by regulating visiting churches and even banning one missionary. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports. In July, Michael Monfor with the Jesus is King mission near the Pine Ridge Reservation distributed a pamphlet to tribal members saying the creator Lakota people worship is a false idol. Monfor, who is white, recognizes the pamphlet is offensive to those who believe in Lakota spirituality. According to the Bible, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but, but by him. And I know that may not be considered politically correct, or it might be considered intolerant or bigoted, but that's what, that's what Christ said. When the pamphlet was distributed on social media, outrage was swift, both locally and among indigenous people across the country. What I see happening with the Oglala is just kind of a continuation of this missionary interference in tribal communities. Jimmy Lee Beeson is Osage and teaches Indigenous Studies at Haskell Indian Nations University. Ridiculing and undermining our traditional spirituality, our belief systems, which is all rooted in a type of Euro-Christian supremacist ideology. This controversy comes as the federal government is now formally acknowledging that for decades it forcibly removed Native children from their families and sent them to Christian boarding schools where many were abused. Now is the time to really bring these conversations more into the forefront. The Oglala Tribal Council debated how to respond. Myron Poirier is a descendant of Nicholas Black Elk, a Lakota medicine man and spiritual leader who is also Catholic and is under consideration for sainthood. The pamphlet said Black Elk had a racist vision. To have any type of church entity come on this reservation, regardless of the denomination you are, you have to accept who we are as a people and our spirituality as a nation. Councilman Ryan Jumping Eagle said the tribe is also concerned about pictures of Native children being used for fundraising efforts and about a lack of vetting for groups that interact with kids. We just want to ensure that our kids are safe when they go with these groups. The Tribal Council eventually voted to require all churches and missions visiting the Pine Ridge Reservation to register, and they banned the missionary who distributed the offensive pamphlet. Oglala Sioux President Kevin Killer says they need to protect the community. They should also respect the way that we believe. Scott Moreau, a dean at Wheaton College and longtime editor at Evangelical Missions Quarterly, says he doesn't blame the tribe for banning the missionary after they saw his pamphlet. Never would I use something like this as a, as a vehicle of evangelism because I think it, it evangelizes through offense. Moreau says the pamphlet evokes the same disparaging approach that many missionaries took in the early days of Western expansion. I found ultimately that can generate fear followers of Christ rather than loving followers of Christ. And that's where I would have perhaps an ethical problem with the approach. Moreau says local churches should make decisions about what a relationship with Christ looks like as opposed to outsider determination. The Oglala Lakota's new ordinance requiring churches and missions to register does not affect local native-run churches and ministries. For NPR News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Rapid City.
This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com.